My name is Trevor Curry, and I'm the founder of Podium Consulting and the Podium Project. 17 years ago, I led a speaker training session for a group of lawyers. It was the first program that I'd led for lawyers, and not just any old lawyers showed up. Three of some of the most respected litigators trundled through the door. These are the types of people that top the who's who list of the various rating agencies. Talk about intimidating. I felt like I've been asked to teach Julia Child how to cook. Well, one of the three people from that group is my guest today on The Podium Project. She's a delight to spend time with and to learn from. Today, my guest is Sheila Block. As you'll hear, I draw out lessons from her experience in court that can benefit us outside of it, whether it's in conference halls, hallway conversations, or boardrooms. Among other things, we are going to learn how body language helped her turn a case in her client's favor, how we can ask better questions, and how to manage anxiety and build confidence. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I can tell you for certain that I did. Welcome. As a litigator and a leader, of course, you wear many hats, and one of those is your role as a trial lawyer. How do you view that role as a trial lawyer? I think the best description comes from the Greek. A trial lawyer is the paraclete, and the paraclete is the advocate, the intercessor, the helper, the one who can speak on behalf of the innocent. So a trial lawyer does that, takes somebody else's problem, figures it out, finds a descriptive narrative that's persuasive, and tells the judge about it or talks to the decision maker. And in that capacity, which you've been in for a long time, it's, it's obvious to you and those who intersect with the law the importance of speaking to a litigator. Based on your experience as a leader in the firm and more broadly in the business community, why do you think oral communication is an important skill? Oral communication is a two-way street, and your speaking is so much more effective after you've done a lot of listening. And in my line of work, for example, it's the client's cause, and you are there on behalf of a client to do what the client herself cannot do. But you have to understand it's the client's cause of action. The fact that you might look at it a certain way and figure out this is so clearly the way she should go or the way he should go or the way the company should go, it's not your decision. That takes a long time to learn, and that really hones your listening skills. And, of course, speaking is so much more effective after you've done effective listening. I appreciate that one of the things that you've been doing over the years is teaching other people how to be effective advocates. And I'd like to explore some of the skills that you teach others and how those can transfer beyond trial advocacy. What are some of the ways that you prepare for court that you also use when you need to speak outside of court? Well, I think it's very important to analyze the situation, analyze the material you're going to speak about, figure out who the, the decision maker or listener is, where they're at, so you can bring them along in a logical way. And then in the techniques we use in trial advocacy, you figure out your good facts and your bad facts. You figure out how to showcase your good facts. You've got to address your bad facts because they'll be in the mind of the decision maker. And you've got to contextualize them and explain them. And then you have to figure out how to lay out the facts in a persuasive way. 
the facts are persuasive. The conclusions aren't. So if you start with all hell and brimstone with your conclusion that so-and-so is the bad guy or the liar or whatever, why should anybody believe you? Particularly judges who are typically skeptical, contrarians. <laughs> oh, is that so? Well, I think I can see another way of looking at it. So what you want to do is use the facts and lay them out in a persuasive way, cluster the facts. One of my favorite examples of what clustering the facts means comes from Irving Abella, who's a prophet. York has done a lot of work on the treatment of Jewish refugees in the Second World War. And I remember him giving a speech where he described that the Canadian immigration services rejected the boatload of Jewish refugees, sent them back in uh, 1939, and they perished in Auschwitz. Then after the war, how they let in the, quote, anti-communists, i.e. the Nazi sympathizers from many Eastern countries. And he finished by saying, and Simon Wiesenthal will not set foot in this country. So he just clustered how we treated the Jews, how we let in all the Nazis, and that Simon Wiesenthal wouldn't set foot in the country. It argues for itself. You, you don't have to be calling people anti-Semites or talking about the retrograde way they, they uh, treated this uh, situation. You just lay out the facts, mm. and the inferences get drawn by the decision maker. And it's something that we teach in trial advocacy is you want the judge to come to the conclusion herself as opposed to you trying to shove it down her throat with a conclusory, hyperbolic uh, assertion. So if the, somebody comes to his or her own conclusion, they'll hold on to it. It's not going to disappear. If you try and place it in their brain without having laid out facts, I mean, obviously, you can cluster facts and lay them out and then give the conclusion, or you can start with an overview that carries the conclusion, but then set out the facts so that the the decision maker will hear that and will come to their own conclusion. And that's a very powerful, persuasive technique that we try and teach people. And I try and remind myself as I'm <laughs> doing as I say, as opposed to uh, um, just telling other people how to do it. One of the things that I see that picks up on your point is is often people, they'll state these assertions with lots of conviction, but they won't back them up with any kind of support. And ultimately, it just rings hollow. And so I agree with you that you absolutely need to have the fact to support the assertions to draw the right conclusions. A few minutes ago, Sheila, you, you'd mentioned, understandably, that oral communication and, and effective oral communication is a two-way street, and it requires listening, and you placed emphasis on that. What's implicit, of course, is that you ask great questions so that you can be listening to really good quality responses. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about asking questions. And my first simple question is, how can we ask better questions? Well, in trial ad, we teach two types of questioning. Open questions, which you would do on an examination in chief or a direct examination, as the Americans call it, or cross-examination questions, which are leading questions. So if you want to get information from people, you have to ask open questions. And we had a very good example of this when we were teaching open questions in El Salvador. 
and we had a, a group of judges and lawyers, both um, criminal side and, and defense side and uh, Department of Justice people, who were encouraged by the American embassy, which in San Salvador is the biggest thing I've ever seen. I think it is actually their biggest plant and equipment in terms of an American embassy. And they were quite keen on having the Salvadorans, after the, all their troubles, adopt the adversarial model for their court system. They're a civilian system, so they don't do a lot of the questioning. So they brought some North American trainers down to teach these methods. And one exercise we used to do a lot was to show that leading questions don't actually get a lot of information from the person being questioned. So if I asked you, you were in an accident, it happened on the road, you were in your car, someone hit you from behind. I mean, I don't know any of that. How am I going to know? But if I asked, have you ever been in an accident? Tell me about it. Then you would be telling me the information you have. So we were doing this little exercise and um, we were asking people to think about any accident or incident that had happened to them. And we were with these folks who were in very... Um, high echelon of, of Salvadoran society. We weren't talking to the ordinary people on the street. We were talking to uh, government officials and, and judges and lawyers. And just about everybody, when we found out the accident, in, in North America was pretty much always whiplash, hit from behind or something like that, or a, fell off a ladder or something you could imagine. It was from each one of these people. It was, they were in bed with their family behind their gated house and 10 masked armed men burst in, made them all lie down on the floor, robbed them, you know. And just about everybody around the table had had this experience. It was, it was frightening. But it just showed you, you couldn't figure that out by trying to use leading questions. If you asked an open question, everybody, we were having dinner on the Friday night of the program and, and just about everybody around that table, about 20 people, had all had similar experiences. <laughs> so open questions will provide you with information. But if you ask questions that are too open, or if you ask, you know, what's your favorite movie or what's the best thing? I mean, those questions I find quite useless because... You know, depending on the time or the one I remember or the last thing I've read, that's what's going to come up. But the open question has to be directive, and there's two ways to do it. Use a headline. Let's talk about your podcasts, Trevor. And then ask a question about the purpose of them, direct you to a time, place, person, event, feeling, aspiration about the subject matter. So... You have to use open questions that are not vague. What happened next? Or tell me about yourself. You know, <laughs> tell me what, what you do for a living. Where did you start? How did that uh, progress? Then what did you do after that? As you sit and listen, you um, can have a lot of information come out because you're both directing to a narrow enough topic to get the person talking and not sit there thinking, well, what the heck does she want me to talk about? But you can direct the person to a time, place, person, event, etc., and then ask an open question. Who, what, where, when, why, how, describe. And my favorite one is why. 
after mm. you get the narrative, you can explore the motivations, the feelings behind it, the, the emotional quotient with the why question. So Sheila, you mentioned that there's open questions, there's leading questions, and you mentioned when you might want to apply both of them. Under open, you said there's headline, there's two approaches, headline, and then I may have missed the other one. So under open, there's headline, and what other? Well, you start with a headline, and then you ask an open question that directs the person right. to a chunk of that topic, Got as it. opposed to the whole huge topic, in which case they may just flounder around. So Sheila, let's talk about conversations as it relates to business development. What are some of the questions that you found to be very helpful to you to develop business relationships with new clients? Well, in my end of the business, clients have me on the list because they've got a problem. So finding out what their problem is, what they're concerned about, on a number of occasions, they'll be talking to me because they've attempted to solve it some other way with some other person. And so finding out what the deficits were in that relationship, what they're looking for in terms of relationship. And then from my point of view, I tell them I need clients who are invested in the matter. I'm not interested in absentee landlords. I want to work together because of that point that I made earlier, that this is the client's cause. It's the client's lawsuit. It's not mine. Mm. And my sensibilities and sensitivities may be quite different on a personal level than theirs are. I had one client, for example, a really terrific woman who's become a friend who was getting a divorce from a real rotter, you know, a guy who made $50 million and paid 30000 in taxes and was just really a bad guy and was now trying to just take everything away from her. And she had this beautiful house. She mortgaged the house to pay the legal fees. I just was sick about it. And he, of course, hired the perfect lawyer for him. Somebody would just scorch earth and take forever and use every cent she had. And I felt terrible about it. And I kept trying to get her to settle it on a basis that to me seemed, you know, this is about all you're ever going to get from this guy and you'll probably never even be able to collect on it. But, you know, at least you could stop the bleeding. And finally, she said to me, I really, if I don't go through with this, I really won't be able to live with myself. I'll regret it all the time. I would never regret it. I would say, good riddance, get on with your life, you know, get on with my life if I were in her shoes. But it's not my feet in her shoes, it's her feet in her shoes. So um, listening and understanding and having that relationship with a client to work together so that the client can use my skills and I can do what the client needs, not what I might on a personal level need. I mean, I'm like many... Um, many litigators. I'm, you know, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm probably an introvert and uh, I'm a conflict avoider in my life. You know? those, <laughs> are two, those are two surprising statements. No, but you talk to many litigators and, and they are very much, this is sort of a pattern for uh, the litigation mentality. Introverts uh, who are conflict avoiders. Well, except that the, back to the paraclete, you know, somebody who 
is there on behalf of someone else who's trying to help someone else solve their problem using her skills. That's really the model. And you don't have to be someone who themselves is aggressive and uh, pugilistic. In fact, probably won't make a very good showing if you are. As I, I listen to you, a few thoughts come to mind. It won't surprise you that I too like to work with clients who are invested in their remarks. And so if I'm coaching a client to prepare for a specific presentation, that's great because they're invested in the outcome. If they just want general coaching, it's not that interesting. Yeah. And the coaching is ultimately not as effective. So I can appreciate that's why it's a key criterion for you in seeking out good client relationships. The other thought that came to mind as I was, as listening to you is a lot of people, as you can imagine, you've stated, they confuse what they find to be interesting or compelling with what their audience does. And so to begin your preparation for what you're going to say by turning it around and say, what does this audience need to hear? And the best thing you can do is ask your audience, which is why we're talking about questions. A few minutes ago, you'd mentioned that your favorite question is why. Are there other techniques that you have used to help people get more comfortable in opening up and provide, providing more fulsome and helpful answers? And if so, what are they? Well, in my line of work, of course, you prepare the witness. In there are many jurisdictions, particularly civilian jurisdictions, where it's not ethical to prepare a witness. Um, but in our system, the adversarial system, it's actually required. It would be a breach of your duty if you just put the witness in and say, well, just tell the truth. You know, I mean, because the techniques that we use on cross can sometimes confound or use word games or language to uh, confuse a witness and get seeming admissions when they aren't real. I mean, it makes what I do sound terrible, but um, a witness who isn't prepared can fall prey to just questioning techniques. Uh, so you have to get them ready and you have to ask them the hard questions so that they know what's coming and they don't give a simple answer which can be misused in arguments. So as long as they can understand the themes and theories of our case, of the other side's case, and so you spend a lot of time so that they know the landscape. And with people who are very senior, who are CEOs or chairmen or you know famous directors or whatever, it's very important as, as articulate and smart and used to absorbing a great deal of information as they are, they also sit at the head of the table and everybody's around them tells them what they want to hear. Nobody's saying, hey, Jack, that's an idiotic thing to have done or said. You know, <laughs> we'll, ne we'll never get anywhere with that stupid idea. No one talks to a CEO like that or a, a, a top guy in a company. So they do get used to a certain amount of deference. And the courtroom is a great equalizer. So they have to be prepared for that. So there's lots of ways to get people ready for the particular kabuki that I specialize in. And as part of that getting ready, do you delegate some of that? <laughs> and I say this jokingly so that somebody else can tell the CEO, that, like, that's really not the wisest thing that could come out of your mouth in court. The answer is no, I do not delegate that. Right. Sometimes, of course, it's very common in a big case to have your witness mock cross-examined. 
and you typically will get one of your partners who, you know, is a junkyard dog kind of channeler <laughs> to come in and pretend to be the guy on the other side, someone with whom your client has no relationship with and uh or probably never will after that yes and often they say oh what so-and-so did in that mock cross was a heck of a lot worse than what happened to me in court but they're ready for you know cheap trick number 29 well surely you're not suggesting mr so-and-so you know i mean that sort of thing they're not used to being talked to with that tone of voice so getting them used to that and teaching them that they should be talking in their answers to the judge. Keep looking at counsel, but you're talking to the judge and answer it like in the tone that you would be using if the judge asked you the question. So, right. so it's a very useful practice to engage in with people who are going to go into this foreign environment of a uh, hotly contested adversarial contest. As you know, I'm not a litigator, and I'm just starting to have this picture being painted in my mind of a, a senior business leader who's used to having all this deference paid to him or her, and all of a sudden in trial, this adversarial, and I can imagine the emotion building up in that person in a way that likely won't serve them well. Let's talk about emotion and the role that it can play either to your advantage or to your disadvantage. What are some of the ways that you try to use emotion to your advantage, either in court or out of court? Well, I would refine the concept of emotion a little bit. And I think what we are talking about, at least in my line of work, is sincerity, genuineness. You know, as Groucho Marx said, uh, sincerity is everything. If you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> what you want to convey as the paraclete, as the advocate, um, is that you are committed to this cause and you are putting it forward in a straightforward, honest way. It is improper for counsel to say, I believe this, or Your Honor, I know this man and he is a terrific person who would, you know, is honest as the day is long. That is completely improper. You cannot vouch for the substance of the case. But when you're presenting the case, to do it with the passion and the sincerity and the genuineness that the client has, again, you are there as the intercessor. That's what you have to get across. And I think it's the same in, in real life. You look people in the eye and you listen to them and then you engage with them on a level at which they can, they can understand. It was interesting as I was listening to you describe that hypothetical scenario. I can vouch for this person and he's honest as the day is long. And you were just got into this mode of speaking with all kinds of conviction. But ultimately, it was an empty claim because you didn't provide any evidence. And I appreciate that was part of the point. In the teaching of trial advocacy context, what are some of your favorite examples or vignettes or stories to illustrate really important concepts to make the points stick? Right now we're doing a course for the uh, legal practice program for all of those graduates who have not secured articling positions. And there's 250 or so people with degrees from everywhere from Pakistan and New Zealand and Ontario schools that 
have not got articling jobs. And so we're teaching them advocacy skills. And to do that with 250 people in the class, I have to really press a lot of my friends and colleagues into service. <laughs> and what I tell them is you teach to learn. Mm -hmm. So it is a great advantage for the teacher to watch people. We use, we use a, a learning by doing methods. So they have a case file and they get up and they do a chief and then they do a cross and they do an opening and they do a closing and they get feedback on their performance so that we demonstrate how to do it and we break it down, break down the skills and then we have them perform in small groups. And so I need all these people that I've worked into doing this. And um, it's really a tremendous thing for for the teachers to sit and watch a performance. And these are mock cases that we, many of us who do this have watched these cases tried hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And there's always somebody who comes up with another angle or way of looking at a case you've tried a thousand times and you've never thought of this. And you go, what the heck? You know, how could I have missed that point? But it is so interesting. And then, of course, as you listen to them, you're breaking down the skill and figuring out what worked for them, what didn't work for them, and why. So it's a way of refreshing yourself on the, on the concepts that you might be on automatic pilot on uh, in your own practice. So it's a very good thing to do. And then watching the students um, and the candidates, and often we're teaching lawyers. I'm going to Stockholm tomorrow night. We're teaching international arbitration practitioners from, you know, all over Europe coming to Stockholm in November. I mean, you know, this is the kind of glamorous life I lead, Trevor. And they will often have come from these traditions where they don't ask questions. And you can see, you can teach them in a couple of days who, what, where, when, why, how describe, you know, the headline, open question. And then the Cross questions, tell, don't ask, uh, state, state the proposition, one fact per question, one after another. So people use their analytical brains, their legal knowledge for the content, but all you're doing is showing them these very simple conceptual ways of thinking about how to convey information. And it's really very, uh, very thrilling. And when you only have a limited amount of time, what are the quickest wins that you find are your go-to approaches to help you make the biggest impact in the shortest period of time when you're trying to help people improve their skills? It's to let people in on the secret of the concepts, <laughs> concepts that they don't practice in. And it's very easy to do. I mean, these are smart folk. We've taught people at the Magic Circle firms in, in London. I mean, hugely smart folk who would have barristers asking all the questions. And, and so showing people what the various components are and breaking it down. And then they can practice as they're standing on the, uh, the underground platform. Uh, they could examine the... Uh, they can cross-examine the, the subway uh, platform. You know, this is, this. I'm in the subway. The walls are gray. There's a sign over here for HSBC. There's a gray vehicle coming. The doors are opening. You know, I mean, you can just practice one fact per question questions. It doesn't matter what the content is. And then you can apply it to your, um, your own case. The analytical stuff, the legal brain power is something we can't give them. But these techniques... 
And you've done it too. I mean, you did it with me when you came here for speech training. You showed me how to introduce yourself, connect it to the topic. Uh, you've got three points. You lay them out, how you sum up. And yeah, I mean, you just set out what I was blundering around doing without understanding the components and putting it together. So it's, this is not rocket science. You don't actually need me to teach anybody anything. Anybody could could figure this out in about 10 minutes. Well, I'm not quite so sure a lot of people would agree with, with any old person can do it. And you're making it sound so easy that even a layman like me wants to sign up and say, I, I want to do that, which is really a testament to you. There's a term, Sheila, that is often used out in Silicon Valley with venture capitalists, and they, they want to know, what's your unfair advantage? And so as you talk about these simple concepts, and yes, you have acknowledged a lot of the people you're teaching are very bright and capable. If the microphones weren't on and somehow I was able to get the real answer to this question, I'd love to know your answer. What is your unfair advantage? Because it's not as simple as you're making it sound like it is. Well, my simple, my, my unfair advantage for a long time was sort of like Justin Trudeau's low expectations. You know, I came into the, the bar in 1972. I started at this firm and was, along with one of my uh, uh, fellow articling students, the first women in, across the threshold in a, an environment where there weren't very many women practicing and certainly hardly any doing litigation and even fewer doing sort of Bay Street type litigation as opposed to family or wills and estates or some other slot that women kind of headed for. And in those days in weekly court, we had chambers days and court days. On court days, you had to wear a gown. And so as an articling student, I couldn't go. But on chambers day, you could wear whatever you wanted. And I would always wear my yellow dress. And of course, there'd be a sea of gray suits and I'd be there in my yellow dress. And then for a long time, I was always pregnant. I had three kids right in a row. And so I'd be the pregnant one in, even if I was in my gown. So I was able to stand up out and people really had very low expectations of women in the profession, women in this, because they hadn't seen them. It was, uh, it was a male-dominated profession. So just as Justin Trudeau proved everybody wrong, that uh, have been has been underestimating him his whole life. I was able, just by virtue of the the demographics of the profession, to kind of sneak up on them for a while. And now that phenomenon likely is working against you because now people's expectations are probably high. And so, what have you done to try to recalibrate that? <laughs> well, by that time, I mean I think what happens in in the profession is you you get to a point where you are known, and if you're known as being a straight shooter, someone who can be relied on, um, both by clients and both and, and the court, someone that the court will listen to, then you, you can capture their attention, maybe unfairly, just because of who you are. But uh, you talk about it sounding easy when I talk about the skills. And as you know from what you do, it's making the connection, as my husband says, who's a great advocacy trainer, making the connection from the mind to the mastic muscles, you know, actually knowing how to do it and then doing it. And that you just practice. You just practice in front of a mirror, your submissions and your, your, even your questioning. You just 
go through what you're going to do out loud because there is a skill element to it that is not just understanding it intellectually. And less is more. Getting to the point, particularly nowadays, there's less and less time allocated for cases. So you can't just get up there and drone on, and besides which, it's not persuasive. So I have three points, boom, 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 and make them count and cut out all the extraneous stuff, get rid of all those adjectives and adverbs that are just distracting and hyperbolic. So as simple as you can make it, and that's what your job is as the paraclete. You'll have a client comes in, dump load, you know, dump truck load of confused material documents, uh, most of them irrelevant, making the choices, that's your job, figuring out what the theme and theory is and getting rid of all the other uh, detritus, concentrating on what counts, and then finding a way of presenting the case so that it's sort of once upon a time Mm -hmm. this happened. Isn't it unfair? Just the (laughs) act of narrowing the focus of what you're going to say is so much easier said than it is to do. And it's a discipline unto itself. I'm always amazed, Sheila, at how few people are willing to invest the time in the oral practice. I couldn't agree with you more. And somebody once said, and I love this quote, if we all worked out as much as we thought about working out, we'd all be Olympic athletes. So it's not enough to have the thought in your head. You need to be able to practice articulating that idea. So we both acknowledge there's elements of what we do, which are incredibly simple. Just because they're simple doesn't mean people are doing them. What are some of the core elements, whether they're skills, their techniques, their approaches that are essential to being effective with oral communication that you think a lot of people take for granted? And between us, they could benefit from revisiting. Well, I am reminded of that great line in Famous Blue Raincoat where Leonard says, did you ever go clear? (laughs) Going clear is key. Understanding your theme and theory, which is what we talk a lot about in, in trial work, and appellate advocacy, what is the point you are making? I remember my middle child, she's a lovely person, she was a lovely child, but she was feisty. She wouldn't take any, she wouldn't just take what you said. And one time I was haranguing her, I guess, it's probably the best uh, description to do something or whatever. And she put her hands on her hips and she said, and your point is? And so asking yourself, and your point is, (laughs) at every juncture, is key. What are you trying to convey? What is the best way to convey it? When will your audience be ready to hear it and accept it? You know, it may be something that you have to build up to, or you might be able to get right into it. But obviously, understanding your audience, figuring out your point, and finding the route that is persuasive, which in my line of work is usually direct with lots of facts clustered to make the point and then arguing the inferences at the end, Um, appealing to common sense, uh, common experience, to the humanity, to the justice of the case. Sometimes you might have to take a more circular route to get people softened up to hear your message. So it really isn't a one-size-fits-all, but there are some tried-and-true techniques that you will pull out of the arsenal when when needed. And no question. 
let's talk a little bit about anxiety. As you know, the act of public speaking for many is just fraught with fear. What are some tips that you have, whether they're ones that you follow or you found to be helpful with other people, to allow people to manage their anxiety and build up their confidence? Well, we do in teaching advocacy run into a lot of people who are coming to a learning by doing course because in the practice that they're involved in, they're they're doing a lot of the background work and the paperwork, but they don't actually get into court, particularly if they're in large practices where, you know, it's bet the farm kind of litigation. You can't have your first year lawyer stand up and argue an important motion because the client will shoot you. you know? So um, you try and give them a piece of an argument or whatever. But often we get participants who are lawyers who haven't done a lot of advocacy. So the first time they stand up, they are nervous and full of self-doubt. And the thing that happens if they do it a couple of times that they ha- and we get people to perform short performances often in, in, the, in a course, you have a week-long course or a three-day course, short performances often, and pretty soon they've forgotten, they've gotten over that. So just actually doing it, if you can, in a mock setting, we videotape people. They can see themselves. They can see the various ticks they have of brushing their hair back or, or twitching or doing something with their pen. As soon as you see yourself, you know, as Robbie Burns would say, what the power of the gift to ye to see yourselves as others see a, and you take one look at yourself and you are appalled. So videotaping is very helpful, practicing in front of the mirror, and they'll get over it. And before you know it, they... They want to be up. Like, isn't it my turn again? You know. So, it's a it, it, practicing is a good way of doing it. If you didn't have enough of a, a track record already, you can do a Scottish accent brilliantly. <laughs> I've learned as well. <laughs> Sheila, I've heard you in the past emphasize that being a lawyer is a giving profession, and you've been very generous with me today. And I really want to thank you for the conversation that we've had. If people want to learn a little bit more about you or get in touch with you, how might they do that? Well, my sister in uh, Ketch Harbor, Nova Scotia, was looking for my work address, and she found something on the Tories website, which is the I Am Tories video, and she sent it to everyone in the family. And I have, uh, <laughs> you know, I have um, three kids, four stepkids, eight grandkids. I mean, I'm getting all these emails back. Oh, we saw your video. You're on the internet. My granddaughter is so excited. You're on the internet, you know. <laughs> so I'm on the internet. There you go. Thanks for joining us today on The Podium Project. We hope you found the conversation interesting and useful. We love feedback, so please share yours in the comments section. Let's talk about ideas for future episodes. Do you have any suggestions for guests to meet and topics to cover? Did you see how I used a headline to introduce that question? If you do have ideas, then please drop us a note at podcast at podiumconsulting.com. If you're not yet a member of The Podium Club, what's taking you so long? Please head on over to PodiumConsulting.com and sign up so that you can receive member-exclusive offers and insights that I only share by email. While you're on the site, you might even find a testimonial from Sheila. I can tell you it certainly made a difference for me, and I'm optimistic that she's made a difference today for you. Until next time, get up on that proverbial podium and speak up.